the Lat with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Nina is off this week, so it's just me and Helen, and we're doing The Dreamers. I'll kick us off. The Dreamers came out in 2003. It was directed by Bernardo Berlatucci, the legendary Italian director who died in 2018. It's set in 1968, on the eve of the wave of protests that confronted Charles de Gaulle at the end of his run as President of France. He resigned in April of 1969. But while the unrest brought an end to de Gaulle's career, his party emerged even stronger, winning an absolute majority in the legislative elections in June of 1968 and increasing its margin in the presidential election the following year. The socialists would not win a legislative or presidential election in France until the 1980s. The film follows an American student who falls in love with a pair of French twins. The twins carry out an incestuous affair, and they manage to pull the American into a polyamorous triangle. The three are cinephiles. They resurrect famous movie scenes, and they indulge in drink and debauchery. They fancy themselves radicals, but the bulk of the film takes place within the confines of a Parisian apartment. They spend their time with one another, neglecting the growing crowds outside. The film plays with this contradiction. At one point, they get into a debate about Maoism. One of the French twins, Theo, is heavily into Maoism, describing the Cultural Revolution as a beautiful, epic movie directed by Mao himself. They all march together, and they all read the same book. But it is quickly pointed out that Theo himself doesn't like participating in revolutionary crowds. Instead, he's indoors, drinking expensive wine, talking about movies. Why? Because Theo doesn't really believe in Maoism. Togetherness for him means two or three people, not two or three million. Ultimately, this conversation seems to drive Theo to prove a point. When a brick breaks the window and disrupts the reverie, the three finally go out to participate in the revolution. But while the American recoils from the violence, Theo insists on joining in. This proves too much for our American, and he finally parts company with his French seducers. Along the way, we see some of the instabilities and petty jealousies that tend to mar polyamorous relationships. When the American and the girl spend time away from Theo, his envy drives him to bring another girl around to make his twin uncomfortable. The more people become involved in, a, in the romantic relationship, the more they tend to fight over how time is distributed. In a monogamous relationship, there is often disagreement about how much time ought to be spent on the relationship and how much time ought to be spent on other things. In a polyamorous relationship, this is compounded by further disagreements over who is being given priority. To give each person the same amount of time that would have been given to the one, all of life must be given over to the romance. To protect the rest of life for other things, the relationship time must be split in a manner unlikely to satisfy all concerned. Time is fundamentally scarce. You cannot produce more of it, and questions of distributive justice always come to the fore when we make ourselves too busy. In this film, the tensions are ameliorated largely by surrendering enormous amounts of time to the polyamorous relationship, to the exclusion of all other values and goals. In theory, if there were time for political action, all three characters have radical commitments. But in practice, the time for political action is heavily limited by the temporal confines of their romance. They are not sexually liberated, 
They are enslaved by the constant demand that they spend their time with one another. Gradually, they fight more and more with each other. If not for the brick flying through the window so fortuitously, they might very well have done one another in. It is one of the core problems with student activism. Compared with workers, especially married workers with children, students have an abundance of time. This causes students to systematically underestimate scarcity as a force in society. When they participate in political movements, they focus on the things affluent people do with abundance, the culture they produce, the art, the lifestyle experiments. But the worker still lives paycheck to paycheck, and even the worker's free time is taken up with managing the stress of the workday. The worker watches films to escape and to relax, and not to be immersed in the reality in which they already live every day. A movement of students and artists can never speak to them. The movement of abundance and the movement of scarcity come from opposite ends of the class system. They speak to opposite experiences of its evils. But in 1968, they didn't know that just yet. And it is this innocence that Berlatucci highlights so well. They did not yet know how irrelevant they were. They spoke in full seriousness of a revolutionary role that would never be theirs. What's our excuse? So let's hear what Helen thinks. I like that uh, polyamorous angle. We should talk about that as well. Um, yeah, so I think this uh, film is sort of a riff on this idea of the personal and the political. The personal is political, what this means and how this has sort of been distorted and what we can potentially imagine psychoanalytically is political about the personal. And it's certainly not just um, I'm doing activism by having a lot of sex. Um, so, you know, there is um, something quite stark in the fact. So, well, Agon Hamza actually has a, an article coming out today in Sublation magazine where he talks about um, the left being um, the, the being deracinated. So the, now that the left has become bourgeois, there is this sort of um, culling of the root of left-wing movements. And it's almost like it's disgusting to the left now. And this bourgeoisification of the quote-unquote left we can see in 1968 and I think this film interestingly you know like for the entirety of the film there's this sort of this backdrop of some political activism and sort of waving of you know um uh communist flags and stuff that you kind of see in the background but also you know there's a little hint about the, you know the students who are participating they're into drugs and all this kind of thing and they you know they were well dressed going to the Sorbonne or what have you and um as you say Benjamin there the, you know, attending the Cinematheque Francaise and all this kind of stuff. But within this film, you know, it's these very sort of nihilistic sexual relationship, um, which is very self-involved um, in remove, you know, it's, they're living in a pigsty, even their parents, the, the, the twins who come back are horrified and have to leave. They don't, eat, they don't want to even eat dinner with their children living in this state, this sort of um, spoilt um messiness and um at a certain point towards the end of the film they are suddenly brought out into the street to participate in this political quote-unquote action and it really does sort of this this stark contrast between the students and the policemen it's quite shocking after having spent an hour and a half in this film and this very removed um very wealthy very privileged very bourgeois very hippie environment um that they're now doing uh, political action, quote unquote, and throwing a Molotov cocktail at some salaried victim also of capitalism, the policeman. You know, we can say that um, police violence, and this is particularly stark in the States, 
is uh, within capitalism, you know, a symptom of um, inequality and wage theft, essentially, that you have to have violence to keep people down. But that's not to say that police, people who join the police are not also victims of um, the extraction of surplus value themselves and have limited choices and are potentially from a very different class background to the students in this film. But I wanted to talk a bit about how desire works in relation to this idea of the person's political, because I think like what has come of, and we see this in in the street in in this sort of 1968 setting. So there are these um, famous slogans written around that you see, and one of them is jouir sans entrave, I think it's jouisser sans entrave, you see, uh, which is like this really, really bad misinterpretation of how desire functions. So jouir sans entrave, it's enjoying without um, borders. And Lacan, who was, um, you know, lecturing at this time, gave a famous lecture to the 68 students saying like, what you are looking for is a master and you will have one. Because desire, and if we say that Lacan has some very strong insights about desire, cannot function without some obstacle. And these bourgeois, as you were talking about, excess and um, coming from a very different perspective to those um, working as a wage slave. And also, you know, these, these oh, oh, driving in Belfast today, um, there are these like really swanky apartments that students live in now. And it's this, it's sort of terrible because it's like these, these few years where you're indebting yourself, but you're getting like a taste for the good life in these sort of five-star student apartments that these horrible corporations have sort of like found a way to extract more money from young people. But it's like, this this one little reprieve where you have lots of free time and you're living in a nice apartment. You know, this is not really uh, an I It's obviously a time where people have times that then they may be more inclined to think about um, something that might seem to be political. Um, but unfortunately, it's not really a, a true understanding often of how the capitalist system functions. Um, but... This idea of, um, I think this idea of uh, desire and how desire is political, and this is what is meant by the person as political in terms of critical theory, um, and how 68, with this idea of jouir sans entrave, tries, actually eliminates or tries to eliminate the pers- the political from the personal. And instead, we get this sort of, the personal is political in terms of like, let me just reflect on my own life in my house, or I'm a housewife and that's political, or, you know, I recycle, I use paper straws and that's political. Like that's sort of what it's been reduced to. But what really this idea of the personal polit- is political is, is how our desire, the nature of our desire, the structure of our desire as lacking subjects, lacking subjects who... Um, always have the sense that we want to fill up this lack, but that can never be filled um, because if it was filled, we wouldn't have the subjective framework that would uh, instigate speech. We've talked about this loads of times on various episodes, but this speech being a function of a second birth, so being born too early, and then a second birth where we're separated from our mother, having been like a fetus that's essentially part of her for a long time, and then this um, not having and not being part of having had it, this this distance creates speech, which creates thought and all this other stuff. And then always feeling that we're missing something. This is where we, um, but this, we only miss something insofar as we, it's lost. Like we were part of our mother, we had the mother's breast and then we lose it. And then we feel like retrospectively, we're missing something transcendent, but we're only feeling this transcendence because we don't have it anymore. And this leads us to, um, to desire and the desire because 
this desire cannot fill the lack. We have to have this obstacle to sustain the image that if we had it, we would be fulfilled. Capitalism functions on the misrecognition of this dynamic. So desire is political insofar as or this personal as in desire being personal to us insofar as we all have it because we all lack. And the one thing that we share is what we don't share as in we don't have something lack. But secondly, um, capitalism relies on the illusion that there is no obstacle and there is a transcendence in, 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 in getting what we want. And I think this film like deals with this in an interesting way in terms of the political nature, quote unquote, the obstacle, the sort of contradiction within desire and how it relates to mimicry, um, a third party and things like that. So one thing that I can think of is in this um, sort of relationship, this kind of three-way tryst, there is this sort of attempt to have it all, to reach sexual ecstasy. And there's always this sort of um, trying to instigate a third... Well, this is what, you know, how love love triangles are, you know, part of this kind of like idea of des- encouraging desire. You know, there's always somebody that you're having sex with and the person who's not having... And, um, there was sort of way in this three-way dynamic, there was one's falling out with the other and all this kind of stuff. But it's interesting that at a certain point near the end of the film that Isabel tries to kill everybody because at a certain point they're in this sort of like um, sexual ecstasy, they're having so much sex, but all that we get when we get this thing that we think we want is melancholy, like there's nothing there. So in order to get desire going again, she has to sort of act as if she's going to kill everybody. Uh, or they, she does... Um, attempt this, make the suicide attempt until the exterior sort of interrupts uh, the, the, this place of the, of the flat and a, like a rock is thrown in the window and then they're sort of drawn out outside. Um, the other thing I want to say here is how, how film works and how, in a sense, okay, so we have this idea that the person is political in terms of like the structure of desire, in terms of everybody is lacking, in terms of like the obstacle to the object of desire, which capitalism sort of obfuscates as as a as a logical dynamic, but there is also a um, an imitative aspect of desire. So, um, in terms of how we are persuaded to desire things, in terms of advertisements, in terms of video games, all this kind of stuff, and um, film obviously is one of these things that um, leads us by desire. We've talked about how um, film can can do this on a sort of more emancipatory level. But these people are constantly imitating film and they're desiring like film and that film has this power over them as some sort of transcendent cultural object. Um, but politically speaking, this is this is something that we need to kind of bear in mind that, that desire does function. And also, you know, this is how like pornography functions as well. And this film does obviously have like an erotic pornographic quality that even if it's not our fantasy structure or our desire, we can still witness something and desire it. And capitalism also, um, part of the alienation in capitalism is to persuade us that we want things um, that we don't actually want. Um, yeah, there's there's various other things that we could talk about, um, but maybe we should save it for the discussion. I guess, yeah, it's just to say really to sum it, to sum it up that um, 68 is precisely a non-political movement or it is um, the encroachment of capitalist logic onto politics and is potentially where it all went wrong. Yeah. So as I was listening to that, I was thinking about Benjamin Constant, the French theorist who argued that there was a kind of distinction between an ancient liberty concerned with being political and a modern liberty that was concerned with having 
freedom in the private sphere. And Constant worried, A, that people might try to be political at a time when that no longer made sense or was no longer possible, but also B, that people might come to like the private sphere so much that they become completely indifferent to politics. And in his novel Adolf, he describes a, a person who gets caught up in a romantic relationship and becomes completely alienated from society and from politics. The thing that is interesting about this case is that we have that kind of thing, a relationship that takes people completely outside of society and outside of the political, but a continuing pretension of being not just political, but being the radical revolutionary, being the most mm -hmm. political kind of person, even as this retreat from society occurs. And I think that's an interesting part of what marks the contemporary period, a period that we can find origin, I think, to some degree in 68 and in that experience of people who have withdrawn from society, nonetheless fancying themselves to be the most political on the basis of lifestyle or performative politics in uh, consumer decisions, in what they talk about, in what they post on the internet, and in supposing that all of these things substitute for or are, not, not even substitute for, but just are what political action involves. And therefore, there's no contradiction between their retreat into their private life and the continued claim that they're political. These students at least could see that there's a contradiction there because mm -hmm. they know that real politics involves, you know, striking and going out and doing things, uh, you know, being in unions and being involved in civil society organizations. But the Internet creates an illusion that one is involved in those kinds of things when one isn't. Totally. It's interesting, like I, you mentioned this moment in the film where the Louis Garrel character talks about Mao and isn't Mao just uh, like the greatest film director, <laughs> you know, and he and the the crowds of Chinese people are his extras. And it's really, yeah, seeing these things in these sort of like aestheticized, poetic, um, you know, cinephile <laughs> terms. And even though, even though, yeah, at least it is, you know, they are going into the street and all this kind of stuff. It's almost like this Molotov cocktail moment at the end of the film is this one moment where they're, they're, it's, it's, it doesn't feel so political, but rather a way to sort of bring enjoyment back into their very melancholic, excessive, bored existence where they have everything. They're on, they're on the sort of vacation in an expensive Paris apartment having sex all day, you know. And this is a way to sort of bring thrill and danger back in. Well, and in this way, the protest becomes the film that you yourself can go be part of. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately mm -hmm. what draws them out is the idea of being in the film and being part mm -hmm. of a film. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And people talk all the time about how the Internet has turned people's brains to mush, but television and movies did it first. Oh, yeah. No. And the thing is, it's like, I think a lot of, I was talking about this the other day on this live stream for Sublation Mag, but like, I think that basically the, the issues with social media are to do with the whole history of cinema, basically, you know, the way that we, you know, the way that we relate to each other online is so different to how we relate to people. Um, and this is to do with yeah, the history of cinema, transference, the mirror stage in Lacan. Like when we see people as a figure on an official platform through a screen, this is not a divided subject that we're witnessing. This is the projection of somebody who is whole and complete. And this is so bad for um, personal stability. So recognition is how we 
um, become a stable subject in reality. And recognition relies on other people. And to be recognized, one must be seen in the eyes of a, of, of a person who thinks and speaks who is himself or herself a divided subject. And when we don't have recognition, we can often feel um, more precarious, which is obviously very, very, very beneficial to capitalism. We make worse um, consumer decisions. We feel more insecure. We're more easily persuadable. And um, it's amazing how, how social media does this. And it's not just even when we project lack, we project wholeness. And this is, we were talking about trolls as well, online trolls, like part of the way, and we were watching this movie, The Divide is recently, all of us, and it's about um, trolls attacking an artwork. And um, part of the reason why trolls are so, um, quote unquote, successful is precisely in the failure of the internet to show the joke. Because as soon as something is uh, delivered on screen. The way we relate to screens is to do with, as I say, the mirror stage in a can, which is to do with the point at which the young child who doesn't feel, who feels like a jumble of bits and pieces and doesn't feel like an actual altogether person, they see themselves in the mirror and the parent says, look, that's you. And the image to them looks really together and with it. And then they identify with that mirror image. And then they start to see themselves as having a cohesion that they don't actually have. And the way we relate to, like as soon as something is written in a sort of typeface that looks like the written word and it's on screen, it seems official and delivered by, even if it's like some random person in the basement, it's there forever. It has this weight to it. And these trolls who are essentially joking, it can take on this weight and influence and power over the other which leads to an escalation and a sort of a binary oppositional like instability that leads to greater precarity and cancelling, all this kind of stuff. But I think that, yes, yeah, social media is bad and p- politics done via social media does not have the same quality that it does in real life. Yeah. I mean, if we think back to what is old timey 20th century politics, it's almost like a, a vassalage or patronage system where everybody who's in these organizations would know the people immediately above them. And the way that you project power down through these systems or up through them is through these representatives who represent the people below them to those further up and who represent those further up to the people below them. And it, and it, you would know, say, uh, your elected representative through the, you know, if you were in a union, your union boss would interact with your elected representative. Your union boss might then have uh, people who are union reps that are further down. And then you as the ordinary worker might talk to the union rep who talked to the union boss who talked to the representative. And through this, you'd have a chain of personal relationships and trust relationships that would enable you to feel that you on some level know what's going on with the representative and he knows what's going on with you. Even if you haven't met the representative personally, there's a personal chain. On social media, as the population expands, as as civil society organizations go away and those links go away, we now are looking across this abyss. So the ordinary person is just looking at the social media account of the representative and trying to make sense of that person without any intermediaries that have a personal dynamic. 
And then you have these celebrity you know, journalists who try to position themselves as if they were the union rep, as if they were the person who sat in between. But you don't know them personally either. And, you're, and they're saying, vouch for me and my impression or my interpretation of this person. And because there is no actual personal connection, there's no series of personal connections, the individual gets caught up in conspiracy theory mm-hmm. as a way of trying to jump across that chasm. And I think we've been seeing that a lot lately with uh, some of the stuff that's been going on in the States with uh, you know, Kyrie Irving and Kanye West and their uh, conspiracy theories that they have been trying to popularize, these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that they've been trying to popularize as a way of trying to understand or make sense of uh, African-American history, something Mm -hmm. that they don't have access to. They don't have access to people who know things about this. They don't have access to the scholarship. They don't have the education to engage with the scholarship. There are are none of the mediators. There's no one in their community who has access to the scholarship on the history of uh, African peoples. So there is no way of being able to know what's going on. And therefore, there's a jumping across this chasm of missing intermediaries to try to have the full and complete and total knowledge. And that is the function of the conspiracy theory. It allows the person to feel Mm -hmm. like they know what's going on, even though they don't know any of the people or any of the relevant bodies of scholarship or bodies of expertise that you need familiarity with to assess the people. It's a heuristic theory for someone who's cut off from the political, but is trying Mm -hmm. nonetheless to engage with it. I know. Yeah. Conspiracy theories are um, age old, but there is something about the Internet that obviously like encourages it. Um, Well, it was interesting. Yeah. Well, well, it just uh, just anecdotally, like I had somebody message, you know, message people on Instagram. You met various people on Instagram who were interesting and had friendships on Instagram and stuff. And um, was having a chat about something or other. And this friend had said, oh, but you come across as so whole, you know, whole and complete and with it, me personally on my, on my Instagram. And it's just, and having said, you know, oh, things are difficult at the moment, whatever. And it just really goes to these friendships based on, on a Twitter, on Instagram direct message. It's like you have this relationship with this person that you've only met through this project, you know, this transferential relationship with the screen. And then obviously you're giving the impression that you're this person when you're not really this person. Um, and no matter how honest you are and how um, un- self-undermining you are and all this kind of stuff, you are elevated to. And this is the thing. I mean, this is where cancelling comes from as well, because you're always elevated or debased in relation to the these sort of... Um, this idea of you have more than you have, or you are more than you are, or you are a total in some way, you are the other who is enjoying because you are um, whole and complete, but actually, you know, you're just a person. Um, and it's not very, but is it, yeah, I mean, maybe we can talk about um, the uh, polyamory as it relates to this, because I think it's sort of polyamory has risen up in a time where relationships begin via a form of social media, the dating app. Um and I wonder if there is a connection there. And there's, ver- there's various reasons why dating apps have emerged at this time, but it is also to do with the rise of tech and the rise of social media and the gamification of everything, the commoditization of everything and the rendering unsafe of uh, interpersonal. I mean, this is, you know, we talked about the harm discourse, of course, 
a lot. And part of interpersonal relationships is like sort of semi-danger and harm. Um, there's obviously harm that you want to avoid, but there's harm precisely because when you interact with another person, they are divided. They have issues. They are a human being. Therefore, they cannot be fully trusted. And, you know, this is not to say to denigrate harm done to you by objectively bad people, but interpersonal relationships are difficult. And part of the way that we become a solid self stable in reality is to rub up against all these difficult, different people who are divided um, because they are uh, speaking subjects. Um, so I guess what I am saying is that, but you know, we talked about this actually in this conversation we were just having before about how under capitalism, we try to avoid risk and harm and what this ends up doing is creating precisely the harmful, dangerous conditions that um, lead to the system's own implosion. I, you know, obviously Marx has his, his insights as to why capitalism will inevitably implode. But I actually think it's um, one of the issues is not just to do with the um, like class antagonism or the issues of surplus value, but to do with um, the irrational uh, risk aversion that monetized institutions and um, you know phenomena induce in terms of choice making, and this leads to a system's own demise. Yeah, uh, I think one of the things we've talked about before is the degree to which romantic relationships have been marketized, and when you're invited to think about the family as a business rather than as a family, that induces you to approach questions of dating and marriage differently. If the family is a business, then if you have money, then you have to ask yourself, well, if I marry somebody else or if I get into a long-term relationship with one particular person, is that person going to be taking advantage of my money, right? And then if you don't have money, then it becomes you know, a factor is can you get a, into a more sustainable kind of, of life by partnering up with somebody who does have it? So it becomes a business arrangement focused around money. And I think for a lot of people, that taints sex. If sex is a business arrangement focused around money, well, then that's not where you'd want to have your sex. You'd want to have it somewhere else where it might have uh, a meaning that feels more significant. And that then breaks up the relationship between marriage and love and the relationship between marriage and sex. And we start finding people wanting to have sex with lots and lots and lots of different people without the market-driven um, you know, imperatives that impinge on married life. But of course, then uh, that quest to date lots of different people and have sex with lots of different people is marketized through the dating apps. So the attempt to avoid the marketization or the, the subjection of the family to more market-driven logics uh, pushes people into uh, a sexually liberated sphere, which is in turn fully subjugated by the market at reproducing the kind of competitive stuff that you see in a, in a marketplace for sex, where you have people trying to sell what they have to other people on a market. Uh, and then it's very difficult to transition. You know, if you've started with a dating profile where you're kind of selling what you have to offer sexually to someone, it's hard to transition that into uh, romance because it's begun as a kind of business proposal. And so I think people, when they look at dating and they look at romance, are looking for some way to engage with those things that's not 
a business proposal, not a market arrangement. But they're finding that whether you try to approach that from the traditional family side or from a more uh, casual relationship with sex angle, that uh, from both sides, both kinds of ways of doing things are more and more market oriented. I mean, this is this is the thing as well that like there's often this um, perverse um, sense, and maybe this is to do as well with this idea of the personal as political that one can be the exception that um, capitalism doesn't really operate the, the way it does for me, or I don't like it, so I'm just not going to do it. And obviously, this is a very capitalist idea, the idea that, I mean, I've seen this happen a lot in, um, you know, very well-intentioned um, organizations and systems trying to do something different to capitalism. But by denying the functionality of capitalism, one gets more caught up in, even more caught up in capitalism, because this isn't just a personal choice. This isn't a sort of ethical, well, I don't believe in it, or I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to buy into it. This is the water we live in. This is un, an unavoidable thing. Everybody's and, money comes from somewhere and nobody's exactly. money comes from some place outside of the whole thing. Nobody's no, money comes from a, an external source. The closest you're going to get is inheriting your money. Mm-hmm. But even then, you know, somebody else had to go and get it. No, absolutely. And the thing is, it's like what often happens is I see this frequently in relationships that have been going on for a long time and things maybe get a little bit stale and one person wants um, the polyamory and the other person doesn't. And to be honest, what tends to happen is the person who has more to lose doesn't want the polyamory. And the person who is in uh, more of a situation where maybe they don't have to think about rent, maybe they don't have to think about aging in the same way, maybe they aren't interested in having children or what have you, um, they uh, are able to pursue the polyamory or want to or are motivated to, and the other party is seen as sort of a downer. <laughs> but but actually, I mean, and this is the unfortunate thing, you know, but I think this is where love comes in. Um, you know, to me, love is political, insofar as it acknowledges, um, it sort of transcends, it, it transcends the logic of desire because it's not about romance. It's not, romance is part of it. You know, we, well, I mean, desire is so complicated and we can talk about it in all sorts of multiplicitous ways, but like in a sense, um, love is traversing the fantasy. So, you know, we've talked about Lacan's dictum of desire so much. And we have on the one side, the stoic, on the one side, the romantic, let's say. The one side, the conservative woke and the one side, the liberal woke, which is sort of don't let your desire pass you by. The um, sort of dialectical idea of pass you by can either be to yield, to give over to, or to yield, to let something go and just, you know, acknowledge it's not going to fulfill you. So on the one side, the stoic is like, well, you know, I lack, uh, I know that, this desire object can never fill me, fulfill me, so I'm just not going to participate. And this is like the um, the position of the nun, let's just say, even though maybe they have a romantic relationship with Jesus. I don't know. Maybe they have an ecstatic. We 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 watched um, the. Is it called the? What was the film that we watched? The nuns? No. Um, yeah, there was a film about uh, early nineteen seventies movie, yeah. really famous. I can't remember. Yes, um, yes, uh, yeah. Anyway, about yeah. Ludon and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then on the other side, you have, like, let's say, 
the radical woke who's like, you can have everything you want and you should go after everything you want and you will feel, you will, um, your identity is, your desire is essential to your identity, which is sort of true, but the difference is that you won't get a transcendent uh, overcoming of lack in getting the thing. But at the same time, you know, it, you basically we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. The the like radical woke is wrong in in that like you're not just gonna getting what you desire is not gonna fulfill you. But at the same time, we ha- still have to have the courage to desire, understanding that it's not got this magical power. And romance, in a certain sense, is a way to sustain this idea that. It's all about getting the desire. But the thing is, what actually happens when you're stuck on this sort of radical, like liberal side is that you end up shooting yourself in the foot and being really, really dissatisfied because you have to have all these sorts of obstacles because we live in a divided universe. We are born of the Big Bang. Our subjectivity is born of lack. There is no like utopia is just in the imagination. Heaven is a place on Earth like as in, it's not that there is a utopia on earth, but we have to make heaven in the here and now. When we project wholeness and completeness in fantasy, as in we will get absolute ecstasy if we get what we want. Well, logically, that doesn't, that cannot operate. We cannot have light without dark. We cannot have on without off. We do not exist without like antagonism having driven this whole thing, unless you believe in God. Um, and that's a whole other story. So let's say we don't, you know, we we come from well I didn't let's say the big bang is true. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so in order to sustain this fantasy, because if you ever got it, you'd be like the the trio in um, the dreamers who end up trying to you know one of them has to try to kill themselves kill the group because it's not fulfilling and it's more traumatizing to be confronted. This is why you know actually billionaires and everybody are miserable because as soon as you get the thing that you think is going to give you what you want, you become it's terrifying. It's horrible. You're like, oh, there's literally no meaning to life at all. So you you create these obstacles to sustain desire. And the thing is, when you're caught up in this romance thing, instead of love, which you give way, you romance gives way to love at the point where you give yourself. I mean, I don't think this is like a conscious choice, but like the person that you love is not elevated as this imaginary subject who can make you whole and complete. They are okay in their I don't know, they might smell bad or they might sleep annoyingly or they might piss you off with what they say, but you still love them. This is something that, you know, often starts with romance, but is a commitment. Um, and it, like, this is why I think that there is like an emancipatory possibility in this universe is that this love exists despite capitalism. Um, but anyway, but you see this often with with like polyamorous relationships. You sort of like, continual tragedies and messiness because when you are bought into this power of romance in order to sustain the fantasy that romance does operate as romance we ideologically believe it does we have to keep coming up with arbitrary obstacles to um to make ourselves satisfied to sustain this fantasy and the thing is like maybe the solution is really to to enter into that knowingly and enjoy the obstacle and then the obstacles start to lessen because you kind of understand how desire functions and you're not caught up in this like absolute kind of like desperation for your lack to be filled. So there's, you know, in a sense, there's nothing wrong with polyamory, but it is, um, it's, I think, naive to not understand that uh, polyamory is not radical 
it is another way of trying to deal with the trauma of desire. So I, I think that it's not that you necessarily have to not believe in God, but there's a particular version of God that I think we can associate in its earliest formulation with the Stoics. God is a kind of omnibenevolent, omniscient, omnipotent thing uh, where if there is any kind of incompleteness of God's vision, it comes down to uh, us having failed in some way to have behaved, right? Uh, I think that there are other ways of thinking about uh, about that that might be more interesting that help us see more contradiction and tarry with things a bit more. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think you know, Yamlikus talks about how you have to kind of start with people where they're at in life, you know, to, to find meaning in life, you have to start with desires that are in the body and you have to start with the physical experience. Now, the purpose of that is not to live your entire life consumed completely by physical experience or by desires. It's in part to lead you back out of that, to bring you out of it and into uh, other things, right? But if you operate from the position of having to negate desire completely and totally all the time in the way that the Stoics do, or in the way uh, you know, some people with poor interpretations of mainstream religions do, uh, that's self-defeating. You aren't ultimately going to be able to do that. You spend all of your time and energy caught up in trying to restrain desire. It becomes a dominating force that takes over your whole life. And in this way, in trying to be free from desire, you're completely enslaved by it, right? You know, conversely, the person who just thinks life is about doing whatever it is that strikes them as fun in the moment, that person's completely enslaved by desire. You're enslaved by desire if you try completely to get away from it, and you're enslaved by desire if you completely accede to it. Insofar as there is any alternative, it's in being able to play with desire, to attach and detach, to decide when to attach and when to detach. Uh, and this is something that we cultivate not by ignoring desire, but by building up our skill in discerning when we should attach and when to detach and increasing our ability to attach and detach based on, on having thought about it and being uh, prudent and having certain qualities that allow us to determine you know, when it might be better or worse to attach or detach. And so the argument that we get between these kind of poles in the binary cultural discourse between attached to nothing and attached to everything, uh, you know, that in-between space requires a tarrying with both the reasons to attach and the reasons not to attach, and a recognition that these things are in play at the same time. If you just do whatever you feel like doing all the time, your life will be a living hell. If you try to resist everything you want to do all the time your life will be a living hell. Mm -hmm. It's only if you, you know, but it's because we don't believe that we have any ability to discern when we should and when we shouldn't. Or we think that once we admit that desire has some validity, it's the only thing that matters. Yeah. Once we're thinking that way, you know, then we're not able to get out from that binary and we just switch back and forth between denying ourselves and indulging. And a lot mm -hmm. of people have gotten into this game where they think the only two games out there are denial and indulgence, repression mm -hmm. and indulgence. And that is a game where you just pivot back and forth between two miserable positions, never actually advancing. And to dialectically advance, you have to build that capacity to, to discern 
and to read the context and decide, does it make sense to go with that particular desire at this juncture and for how long? And to check back up on those decisions that we mm -hmm. take and see if they're working for us. No, exactly. And, you know, politically, what tends to happen in an absolute, um, in a situation where you absolutely hold to one of those two poles is that contradiction has to go somewhere because everything does contain contradiction with it and within it. And then this leads to scapegoating and enemy making. So it's, you know, this sort of utopian vision that like, well, this isn't working. And the reason why it isn't working is because of this particular thing or this particular issue or this particular person. The reason why, you know, maybe for a conservative, um, you know, we don't have happy families and, um, you know, a perfect nuclear family option that in the way it used to be is, is because of the way that people desire, maybe because of polyamory or because of, you know, homosexuality or what have you. And you see this like so much in the sort of the latter part of the 20th century, when really the issue is capitalism um, or, you know, the denial of the contradiction within our system. Um, yeah. And then on the other hand, you might, you might have this sort of, um, you know, the, it would all be great. I would experience the wholeness of my desire um, now that I have discovered that I desire in this certain way. If it wasn't for these people who are against my desire and who bully me and who make me feel upset about my desire, rather than understanding that there is no, you, you, you can, um, we are endowed with various desires from the point when we enter into language and we can't often choose them, but we can relate to these desires in ways that recognize the actual dynamic of the desire. Yeah, the, the love that you're talking about, you know, when you get, you might fall in love with someone through a process that begins in Eros and begins in a physical kind of romantic thing, right? Some people, they spend their whole life chasing that sense of the romantic, erotic, transcendental. And so as soon as it flags with someone, they go find someone else to try to get it with. And there is an element of it's got to be something new. You have to be having a new experience that's higher and, and more intense, right? And if you're pursuing the most intense experience possible, then you constantly are moving around. And of course, you constantly would need to be having sex with all sorts of different people to constantly pursue that. But if it has the kind of pedagogical effect that it's meant, you know, that, that it ought to have on somebody, you then pivot from the pursuit of the erotic to once you, you get it and you realize that it doesn't hold anything, then you can move into a kind of love which involves the recognition of duty, right? You help your partner, not because it will give you this erotic experience that you desire, but because you have a love for this person that goes beyond their ability to give you a physical experience that is uh, in, involves you having certain duties of care and concern to that person that are bigger than or more important than any particular desires that you may have. But to get to the point where you can recognize things like duties of care or concern, to actually understand what they mean and how they affect your life, you have to get over this desire to have the personal that the personal totalizing satisfaction, which of course you never get in life, mm -hmm. right? But only once you admit that is not something you can get, is there then an opportunity for that to be transformed into this better kind of love? And it requires that, that, uh, that pivoting. And what, 
we have people now who feel as soon as the erotic kind of goes out of it or becomes a smaller part of it, they think they're out of love. They don't understand mm -hmm. this notion of duty. They think that once they've been subjected to duty, they've been subjected to some kind of uh, you know, nasty right wing framework that strips them of their freedom. So instead of embracing that, they then you know, pivot into pursuing more and more and more relationships. And this keeps people on a treadmill but this running is, around. So this is the difference between the bad infinite and Hegel and the good infinite. So the good infinite, of, the bad infinite is sort of the logic of capitalism. And this is the logic of, um, you know, these video game type um, dating apps. Um, not only is there sort of a, like a, a horizontal towards the horizon infinite that there's always somebody better that's just around the corner so you shouldn't you should have many people that you're chatting to and that you can't commit to this person because somebody might be this next person that's precisely what you're after but also the way that it shows um profiles to people and in a hierarchical way so you're more likely to be shown somebody who is popular um and this uh gets us to invest in a certain um percentage of a hierarchy um, always aspiring for um, somebody who is um, higher up this sort of totem pole as it's presented to us. And this is to do with this logic of lack and the fulfillment of lack in desire. So um, I don't have, if I have this, I will be transcendentally happier. This is the logic of capitalism. Whereas love recognizes, and it's it's interesting because it's like, it's not like this is something that you consciously do. And I think love shows that there is um an alternative logic to capitalism in this good infinite where you can never get to know someone. You can never conquer the other because the other is divided, lacking, doesn't know themselves. The mysteries of the Egyptians and mysteries to the Egyptians themselves. And to fall in love is to enter into this more elliptical form of de desiring where you always are going deeper and never getting <clears throat> getting there with this person. Um, and I'm, you know, I, in different forms of political economy, I'm sure there's different ways of desiring. You know, I'm sure this can happen with multiple people and all this kind of stuff. But um, there is something under capitalism whereby, um, you know, so a misrecognition with uh, the kind of discourse. Like anything can be a justify, you know, not just because of an aesthetic value is something critical of capitalism. Something is critical of capitalism in its understanding of the unconscious logic of capitalism. Things can aesthetically look like um, things that challenge capitalism and actually be ways of obfuscating uh, capitalism to a greater degree, precisely because they have the aesthetic of looking like something that is challenging capitalism. So one of these things is related to the way that we um, form communities um, as a way to protect ourselves from capitalism. Um, and one can say that this formation of communities is a symptom of capitalism in that it's, it is a way that un in these conditions, people tend to club together. And one might assume that we can, in an accelerationist way, get rid of, because, because this is maybe a symptom of the political economy, if we look at the symptom, we can destroy the political economy. I think this is a misrecognition of how capitalism operates. And we really have to look at the political economy and not at the symptom. Because if we look at the symptom, we're taking away uh, 
so, and do nothing about the, the actual structure of the political economy and our liberal relationship to it. We just strip things back further and further and further and implicate ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into that political economy. Yeah, what people do is they cope because that's what you have to do. It's how you survive this kind of system. So you construct different forms of social organization that enable you to cope. And some of those forms of social organization are better copes than others. It's not as if all life in every moment at every time under capitalism is relentlessly miserable and grim. Uh, there are some forms of structure and forms of organization you can make that better protect your coping. But when people mistake coping with the kind of political action which changes or challenges the system, that is a rationale for coping beyond the only rationale for it, which is that you have to do it as a means of survival, right? So there's what you have to do to get by. And then there's any effort or time you might put into trying to make things better. But those are two different things and they can't be read as the same thing. And if you start reading them as the same thing, then you treat coping as politics and politics becomes coping. And when politics becomes coping, then politics isn't evaluated in terms of whether or not it's effective. It's evaluated in terms of whether or not it makes us feel better, makes it, uh, us more able to cope. And a lot of what people call politics now is this coping that has been dressed up as politics. It's stuff that makes them feel better about their situation, but does not fundamentally change the situation. Stuff that improves your attitude perpetuates the thing rather than putting you in a position to modify it. But part of the trouble is that a lot of people are in such bad shape that they don't have an alternative but coping. They need to cope to survive. And because they need to cope, they're not really available to do politics. And then part of how we deceive them and deceive ourselves is in telling them and in telling us ourselves that when they're coping, they're doing politics. And that is misleading. Uh, it doesn't work politically. And it, it causes people to feel, you know, it, it may seem kind because it makes someone feel better about what they've got to do anyway. It makes them feel like there's emancipatory potential in their way of getting through the day. But that's lying to that person. And that prevents that person from potentially finding moments where they might actually do something political. If they were aware of the degree to which what they were doing wasn't political, that might you know, cause them to find some kernel of time in their day to do something that actually is. And so we've really got to stop pretending that all this stuff is. But the trouble is even that itself is a necessary cope for a lot mm -hmm, of people. Mm -hmm. Not being able to do politics, really not being able to do it, not having the time, not having the energy, not having access to any kind of civil society organization through which you could channel political action. A cope for that is to pretend that your other copes are forms of politics. And so we pretend the lifestyle is political precisely because we have no other means. And we can't come up with another means. And nobody's going around and offering us another means. Here's the question, just because we've got a few minutes left. And I maybe you, you will know a lot more about this than I do. So 1968, what is it a symptom of and why does it happen? Well, 1968 is the beginning of, I think, the creation of the professional class, you know, the expansion of the number of people who go to university, therefore the number of people who are receive a lot of education before they've participated in the workforce, and so have been given a lot of tools that workers don't have, but have been denied a set of experiences that workers do have. 
and creating this this mismatch between the people with the education but without the experience and the people with the experience but without the education. And then, of course, once they do get jobs, then they're caught up in their jobs and in the logics of trying to climb up their job ladders. And they take jobs that they think of as political. And so they think by climbing up the career ladder in journalism or in politics or in uh, the academy or whatever, that that will have some kind of political effect because they think that their careers in the civil uh, civil service uh, in these different institutions and structures are political careers in some sense. So they then believe that their personal you know, growth, personal career development in some way also benefits the movement. And so that, as we move forward into the 70s, 80s and 90s, is the next step for a lot of these people. After they leave university, they mistake their own career development for accomplishing something. And then in the end, of course, that generation doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't accomplish anything as students, and then it doesn't accomplish anything once it's in the institutions. Uh, but it accomplishes uh, neoliberalism and the shitty right. offspring. Yeah. yeah, if anything, that generation <laughs> becomes the generation that you know, participates in the movement of things to the right through the neoliberal period. But it's this grand delusion that if you give people university education, that that will be emancipatory, that by changing the consciousness through the experience of the university system, that in and of itself mm-hmm. has revolutionary potential. And it's an experiment that we are still living through the end of because so many of the people who were told that this was what it was going to do and this is what it was for, you know, the very first time that anybody tried this uh, are still alive and still with us and still some of them are still in politics and still in government. And we haven't gotten to the point where there's been a full recognition that sending people off to university does not make them the revolutionary vanguard. It just doesn't do that. It does a lot of other things. But it doesn't make them the revolutionary vanguard. And then once you get over that, uh, and then you look at what's happened to the unions and the decimation of the organized working class, and then you go, well, what's left? You have a bunch of people who went to university who are in no position to lead. You have a bunch of people who are in the working class who are disorganized and prone to believing you know, Kanye and Kyrie Irving style conspiracy theories. So where do you go from there? You've got a lumpen working class and you've got students who have no idea what's going on running into art museums, throwing soup at stuff. And it's in that void that capitalism continues to thrive. Yeah, we have no politics. Anyway, right. we're at an hour, right? Yeah, we're at about an hour. So cool. we're going to wrap it up. We're going to go do the B-side for our Patreon listeners. We, of course, appreciate it if you do support us on Patreon. But either way, thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.